0: Hello, hello, and hello. Don't say hi back. It's fine. I'm not sensitive or anything.
1: Hello. How are you? Sorry, I was looking for what my character was supposed to be because I forgot.
0: Chronically Narnia, the podcast in which my co-host and I discuss the Chronicles of Narnia chapter by chapter. And today we are discussing chapter 12 of The Silver Chair. This chapter is called The Queen of Underland. I am the epitome of everything in this world that Jill can think of. I am Adela Pennyfather, holding a ration book in a queue for the cinema, in Jill's memory, also known as Kristen, and this is my co-host.
1: Your co-host feels like you're really stretching the uh, taking characters out of the chapter for your introduction. I like mean, you're, there's you're, you're... four <laughs>
0: chapters and two gnomes. There, are, sorry, there are four characters and two gnomes in this chapter. Uh huh. And that's how what the case has been for like the last four chapters is what it feels like.
1: You so. could have been a wood pigeon. Like, there are all these options.
0: I could have been a wood pigeon. Pigeon. I could have just been a ration book. You could have. I mean, like... Anyway. I could have been a cat. We love cats.
1: You love them. Uh, should I introduce myself? Yeah, go ahead. Anyway, some call me Caspian the Seafarer. Ah. I'm also known as Chris. Hello, Caspian. The Seafarer. Um.
0: Hey, Chris the Seafarer. How are you? <laughs>
1: Pretty good. All
0: right.
1: <laughs> How's your day going?
0: It's going well. Got some coffee. Gonna eat some good lunch later. I'm
1: excited about that.
0: I'm excited about lunch.
1: That Gouda Mac.
0: Yes. Mm-hmm. Lobster Gouda Mac. Yes, please.
1: Is it Lobster Gouda
0: Mac? Yes. That's why I was so upset that it wasn't letting me order it. <sighs> okay. That's the reason that I messaged you. Because I it.
1: thought you just said, I, I thought you were just like, you know, it's regular Gouda Mac. And I was like, why are you so excited about that?
0: Nope. It's the Lobster Mac
1: all right now I, now i see now you see yeah i see where you're coming from yeah anyway
0: hello so what do we do when we start this podcast
1: uh well first we banter about what food we're going to eat later
0: i'm so glad that you finally learned that the first step is banter and <laughs> not the, the summaries
1: you know you know just uh over 75 percent of the way through book six i've finally gotten there
0: yep <laughs> yes indeed <sighs> What do we do after we banter, my co-host? What's the first thing we do?
1: Uh, we tend to summarize the chapter. We pick five sentences out of the chapter to get a good uh, starting point for how how it goes and what we're talking about. Huzzah! So that's what we do. We read those,
0: and we are at chapter twelve of sixteen. So we are now seventy five percent of the way through this book, we are. and we're still no better at doing summaries. No, I'm um, sorry. Uh, <laughs>
1: believe we have we have at most like 20 chapters left in this entire series
0: i think so i think the last book is a 16 chapter it might be 15 might be yeah. 17 who knows
1: another five months so i think because of
0: i think because we took a week off and we did an extra record on one we're not going to finish before the yeah. end of the year
1: yeah we had we had assumed we would finish in 2021 but we're actually going to finish in 2022
0: well the plan was to finish in yeah.
1: 2021 And do 2022 with a fresh start And a new book series Which we still can
0: can. We just have to do it, you know We have to record the last few episodes in 2021 So that when we release them in 2022 We're already moved on to new projects
1: Gross Uh, Anyway whoa, (laughs) We still gotta do that world building thing at some point Yep We put a pause on that We need to get back to it We do, we really do Anywho, so who would like to go first? Not me Okay.
0: But um, I will, because Um, I don't want to read my uh, rewrite first. So, let me go ahead and read my summary first. This is my five-sentence summary, trying to summarize. Did you say all of this? Yes. Okay. (laughs) Here's my summary. They were followed immediately by the last person whom anyone had expected or wished to see, the Lady of the Green Kirtle, the Queen of Underland. And all through the conversation which followed, that smell grew stronger and filled the room and made it harder to think. I'm on Aslan's side, even if there isn't any Aslan to lead it. Long before there was time to do anything, the change was complete and the great serpent, which the witch had become, green as poison, thick as Jill's waist, had flung two or three coils of its loathsome body around the prince's legs. With repeated blows, they hacked off its head.
1: There you go. We have three sentences in common.
0: I, I mean, it's not really hard, like, hard for us to have sentences in common in this particular chapter. Yeah. Like, this one is...
1: We have three sentences in common in the correct places, even. tenses two, four, and five, we all have. Okay. <laughs> there you go. We haven't done that in a long time. Yeah. Um
0: Give us your summary.
1: So here's my summary, which seems really redundant at this point. She stood dead still in the doorway... And they could see her eyes moving as she took in the whole situation, the three strangers, the silver chair destroyed, and the prince free with his sword in his hand. And all through the conversation which followed, that smell grew stronger and filled the room and made it harder to think. But Puddleglum, desperately gathering all of his strength, walked over to the fire. Long before there was time to do anything, the change was complete, and the great serpent, which the witch had become, green as poison, thick as Jill's waist, had flung two or three coils of its loathsome body around the prince's legs. With repeated blows, they hacked off its head. There you go. Anyway, so I wanted to include Puddleglum's moment of uh, Me too. awesome in there. So yeah. that's what I...
0: That's what that's what the quote I included was intended to convey, because that mm. quote is, Puddleglum, I'm on Aslan's side, even if there isn't any Aslan to lead it.
1: Yeah. Um, cool, so... I mean, a lot happens in this chapter, but also this is a chapter which takes place over, I would say, the most, like, 10-15 minutes of real-world time. Yeah. Like, it's it's a... This is just a scene that happens.
0: Yeah, Um, but it's also, like, a really intense... Yeah. Conversation, if you can Uh call it that, that happens. Mm -hmm. And I would say it probably would have taken more time for them to just sit there and argue, but... It also, would. yeah. It's it's a short short uh scene that it's conveying.
1: Uh so here's what happens here. Uh they are gonna leave. Uh Rillian is now no longer ensorcelled. he's broken the chair.
0: What's the point of doing a summary if you then just summarize? <laughs> <laughs>
1: he's he's gonna head out and then oh wait, there's two Earthmen coming up the stairs, they enter and the That's, last person that they was the to...
0: end of the last chapter. Yeah. And then we pick up this chapter with, who comes through the door?
1: Lady the Green Cardle herself. It's her. She comes on through, and she looks real angry. All the color goes out of her face, and she just looks real ticked off. Yep. Um, but then gets real calm, and is just like, "Nope, I got this. I have I have contingencies for this situation." And well, immediately she
0: doesn't have her her chair thing anymore. Well, yeah, she she sees that the chair is broken, but she also knows that she still has powerful enchanting tools here in this very room. Like, she's angry that this is becoming an issue. Yeah. But she also know, like, you know, she gets real calm because she also knows that she has all of her other tools here.
1: Yeah. She has a backup plan. And then, you know, Rillian gives this whole speech about, like, Irma Gird. You're the one, yeah. He starts by saying, Armored Gird is right here in the book. <laughs> uh, and he's just like, <clears throat> in very flowery speech, is just like, yes, you're the one who's imprisoned me. I'm free of this uh, binding and this spell that you've put on me. I'm a head out. I bid you, you know, give us passage, give us a guide out of here. We're leaving, et cetera, et cetera Which is his first mistake. Because, I mean, I mean,
0: yeah, appreciate- his, first, his first mistake. The first mistake Rillian has made. Well,
1: now that, since we've <laughs> known him in the book. Okay. But, I mean, really appreciate his level of self-control, but also he just came out of being ensorcelled for the past ten years. Like, he's learned he spent a decade underground being uh, held captive by this witch who he is aware is the same person who killed his mother and, like, is the subject of his vengeance.
0: He, well, he doesn't, I disagree with that. I disagree that he's uh, he's fully aware of that. I think that he may suspect it, but I don't think he's actually put it together until the end of this chapter. Yeah,
1: possibly. But because anyway.
0: at the end of this chapter, he says, I've been enslaved to my mother's slayer.
1: Yeah. Well, he, yeah. But he, he puts is- it
0: together in this chapter, but I definitely don't think that he knows it right here as she walks in the door.
1: I mean, he's still aware that, like, this is, like, the person who has held him captive for the past ten years. Yes,
0: he is aware of that. But I, I think that there's, yeah. I think he also, this this way of approaching it for him is not only just, like, court politeness, uh-huh. but is also, to some extent, his um, his acknowledgement and respect of her power that he knows that she has. Yeah. Because he has very much been controlled by her for 10 years. Like, there's no reason for him to just suddenly be like, yeah, so uh, you don't have any power. Like, he knows that she's a witch, and he knows that she has power.
1: Yes, and that being said, and also knowing that she has, like, instruments of enchantment and magic... They just let her casually stroll over and light a little magical fire and then sit down and start playing an instrument. Like, nobody says anything about this. Yep. Like, yep, we're going to let her do whatever she wants. Like, we don't know what abilities she has or what kind of power she wields in this place. But she can do whatever. You know, it's totally fine. I'm sure it's not going to do anything that's going to harm us here.
0: Well, and, like, with that said also, you have to blame Rillian to a certain extent on this one because he told the kids to follow his lead.
1: Yeah, yeah. Which they all should have immediately, like, drew their swords, been like, it, if they're not going to attack her, at least be like, yeah, you don't move. You're going to stand right there until we leave.
0: We're yeah. gone. Yeah.
1: Like, which is still a dumb idea because, like, Because leaving- she then
0: has an army of Earthmen. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. So, like, they approach this situation in a really dumb way.
0: Yeah, but also, what else were they supposed to do? Like you said, like, are they supposed to kill her? There's still an army of Earthmen. There's two Earthmen present that might witness her getting killed by them.
1: Take her with like, you, like hold her at sword point, and like march her out, and like take her as a hostage as you escape. That's ensuring the Earthmen aren't going to attack you. Like there are ways of getting out of this that don't involve them being stupid. Um, anyway, so she wanders over, throws magic dust in a fire, um, and turns it green. Uh, and then sits down and starts playing uh, some sort of mandolin-like instrument, playing this sweet, hypnotic song. Yep. Uh, and then she starts making them question uh, everything about their entire reality.
0: Yes, she is the witch of gaslighting.
1: Yes. Uh, almost quite literally, as she's lighting this fire. Yes. So she does this, and we have this very long exchange um, that I don't want to read like all the excerpts out of. But... This is a really long conversation between the witch and the three of them where she's basically making them question everything and being like, oh, you're from Narnia. Where's that? It's from the overworld. Where's the overworld? How do you get there? That's a silly concept, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Yeah. And I, I really enjoyed, there is a specific line in this um, conversation where the, where the witch is like convincing them that they've dreamed about this. Yeah. Eustace says, we, we met you in the overworld. Of course you've been there. And she says, but it's something along the line of, not everyone dreams the same thing, so you can't ask them to remember
1: uh-huh. what you
0: dreamed them in, you yeah. know, kind of thing.
1: Uh-huh.
0: And I don't know, I just really, I, I really appreciated that line. Like, obviously, it's part of this enchanting and ensorceling and all of that. Like, it's yeah. it's coming from a place of bad intention. Yeah. But I just really liked the way that the line was phrased. I don't know. I just, I really enjoyed the, the mental image of like, well, not everybody dreams the same dream. Yeah. So you can't expect me to remember what you dreamed me in. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I really liked it.
1: Um, anyway, this, this whole exchange made me go kind of two directions in my thought on this chapter. The first one is Plato's allegory of the Cave. Okay. Um, which, which you're familiar with. I I'm am sure. familiar with, but and, let's
0: tell our audience uh, about knowing about the fire and the shadows. Uh,
1: yeah, so I, I would have to do my refresher on Greek philosophy to, to remember exactly what point Plato was trying to get at. Um, I knew, I know Plato was, I believe, probably talking about this idea that Aristotle had uh, also talked about of the eidos, of there being an idealized version of reality that our reality is just a reflection of. But Plato's Allegory of the Cave is this idea that, you know, there's these people that are sitting in the cave and by firelight seeing all the the shadows of these things that are outside and being like, this is their entire world. And they see the shadows of trees and animals and whatnot playing against the wall of the cave. And saying, well, this is what the world is, not realizing that those are just a poor reflection of what actually exists.
0: Yes, it also has to do with someone trying to describe to them that which is causing this. Yeah. Trying to describe the fire, trying to describe the trees, trying to describe that which is casting the shadows. Yeah. And the people who only have ever experienced the shadows not being able to grasp that or conceptualize of the reality and challenging the person who's describing reality to them Mm -hmm. being like no that doesn't make sense because this is what we see and experience
1: yeah uh and so that jumped out at me immediately but also this is this whole conversation is apologetics
0: yeah
1: uh because I, I, I really... I mean, I can't say this for sure because I've never spoken to C.S. Lewis about this chapter. Uh, but I'm almost positive what he's getting at here is, you know, Narnia is an allegory, of course, for heaven here. And, like, the idea of, you know, God's greater reality and, like, the... You know, the... The the true existence beyond, like, the fallen world, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, where you have this... Uh, character who's very like devilish or you know this deceiver who's trying to be like oh no this reality that you're in that's all there is like here in you know the underworld this dark place that's all that exists and you're silly for thinking there's something beyond that that's better
0: Yeah.
1: and that's uh, you know kind of Lewis's children's version of apologetics of being like you know these are arguments that the you know, non-believers are going to use and being like, oh yeah, you believe in Jesus? Tell me about him. That's a silly idea, et cetera. And, you know, heaven, where's that? How do you get there? Like, these yeah. these questions designed to make the idea of faith seem silly or pointless. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that comes to a head in Clum's assertion at the very end of this being like, well, even if it is silly, I'm still going to believe in it.
0: Because it's a better world.
1: Yeah. And, like...
0: So what is that teaching children though? Because <laughs> that's very much like the uh like Pascal's wager. Yeah. Like and, and I don't feel like Lewis in in the theological texts of his that I've read is very much someone who would just be like, Yeah, Pascal's wager, that's why I believe. Yeah. He doesn't strike me that way.
1: But at the same time, I think Lewis acknowledges like the ultimate need for faith because like to someone who doesn't believe you're never going to logic the existence of god. Yeah. Like you you cannot come with math mathemat- come up with mathematical proof that god exists or anything like that and at a certain point you have to take things on faith, which I think is his argument here. Mm-hmm. Being like, yeah, we can talk about it all we want and say we've seen these things and experienced these things, but we're talking to someone who's arguing against their existence. And so at a certain point, you just have to be like, well, yeah, I think it's a better world, so I'm going to believe it regardless of whether you think it's dumb or not. Yeah. Um, which I think is kind of in line with his theology. I know he gets very deep into a lot of apologetics and, and talking about why the idea of God makes more sense than the idea of not being one. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there is still a certain element of faith there. Yeah, um, which is how, how we arrive because this whole conversation is them struggling and them. You know, they have these breakthrough moments, like where Jill remembers, "Oh yeah, Aslan," and brings Aslan up, and that gives them like a moment of clarity. And we have like, of course, the powerful sorcery of Clum. yeah, uh, who is fighting really, really hard here.
0: Well, and that's and that's another thing I wanted to talk about because we we've, we've kind of like jokingly said but also haven't been proved wrong uh-huh. that puddle glum is magical and that he is enforcing some kind of magical protective power over them yeah. in all of these things that he says oh well these are all the things that could probably be going wrong and yes. he is very much like jinxing those things from happening yes and he does that again here very specifically saying things about her world versus... But yeah, like, Puddleglum is very specifically fighting against and, like, using his his magic here when he finally does stand up because we have this whole conversation about Narnia, whether it exists or not, the sun, whether it exists or not, Aslan, whether he exists or not, and then finally Puddleglum comes out and has his little heroic moment. Mm-hmm. But Puddleglum is arguing with his magical sorcery. He's fighting in the same way that we've known him to protect before.
1: Yeah.
0: And then he actually takes action. And that is that is the, the moment where he steps up and does something. Uh-huh. Well, and it's really cool. Before that happens, though, I wanted to talk about the Lady of the Green Curdle arguing the idea that, you know, what is the sun? Uh-huh. You see you can't even describe the sun without using terms of something that's in this room. Like they say oh, we'll see the lamp here. imagine that but high like larger and brightening brightening the whole world and on the surface up in the sky and she's like, what holds it there? Look, you can't even argue you can't even explain to me what it is you're imagining like you've taken something from this room yeah. and made it in your imaginings to be this big thing, which I mean like there's a certain amount of logical fallacy there to begin with, but yeah. also like I don't know, it, it, like you were saying it's here's an argument that is frequently going to get used against people who are trying to describe a faith moment or something like that and being like, "Yeah, well, you're just thinking about something else and you're attributing qualities of it to this other thing.
1: I mean here within the chapter itself there's also this is also like a failing of like their language abilities because i feel like it would be it's pretty i could describe the sun without comparing it to another thing. Yeah. So <laughs> i feel like this is just them failing to uh, make a good argument.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I mean but they're being enchanted actively so you uh-huh. can't hold that against them. They're also children like if no. If your seven-year-old nephew had to describe the sun to somebody, I don't—I don't think he would get much better than that.
1: Yeah, I feel like he'd come up with a really weird metaphor that everybody would just be like, "What?" Uh, he, he would probably he describe
0: that. it in terms of a Pokemon. Is what the actual <laughs> the actual reality of that situation is.
1: That's just how he perceives reality. Everything relates to Pokemon. Um, yeah. So they have the, this whole back and forth and i was going to get into puddle clum uh, and his sorcery because what it made me think about uh a little bit was we haven't we haven't really had a star wars discussion on the <laughs> on the pod in a while tell me more uh and so there's this argument that occurs in uh really ha- ridiculously nerdy circles which i've never been a part of never ever um where people are like
0: you and Nat have never had this argument.
1: Never had this argument at all. Absolutely. Where people talk about uh, like the Star Wars films and you know, other them. other media, when you have these these fights that are between Force users, like the Jedi and the Sith or whatever, uh, and you have these like epic lightsaber battles and and whatnot.
0: Why don't they and build best car pommel hand protectors? Because so many people lose hands playing with lightsabers.
1: Uh, totally
0: you know playing fighting fighting uh, with
1: lightsabers uh, totally a thing in the extended universe that i'm not going to go down that rabbit hole but um (laughs) anyway you you see all these fights that are mainly just like sword fights between like these wizards and people have raised the question of these are people with magic powers of like telekinesis and things like that and like why do they fight with swords so much and the the in-universe explanation here is that the reason you don't see things like, you know, one just choking the other one out or using the Force to stop somebody's heart or something like that, which seems like a much more direct way of defeating someone than whacking them with a sword a bunch of times, is the reason that doesn't happen is because when you have a fight between these two powerful Force users, what you're seeing is 10% of the battle and 90% of it is all mental.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. And they're doing so much work in their heads to raise up their defenses against the force and anticipate what the next person's move is and you know make sure that the other person doesn't have a moment to try to cast like a force choke or something like that and it's like this huge mental battle that's like underneath the tip of the iceberg from the sword fight Mm -hmm. and i feel like that's a great analogy for what's happening here between puddle glum and uh she doesn't have a name. She never gets a name. Yeah, She's just well, the lady the of the green turtle. Yeah. Yeah. Uh where, you know, he is gonna go up and kick over the, the, the fire and break this enchantment. But before this they had this incredibly like neck and neck mental battle of him trying to cancel out. He's casting counter spell. Because yeah. I gotta throw my D and D metaphors in here too. <laughs> uh, and trying really hard to fight against this. And also, I think it's worth pointing out that in a very strict definition of the term, Puddleglum is the only true Narnian in the room. Yes. Because in a very strict definition,
0: he is. That is correct.
1: Yeah because Rillian is descendant from the Telmarines and
0: and some star lady
1: and some star lady yeah and so he is the only actually native Narnian creature correct which I feel like
0: it was very important, important because it it has a definite distinct difference in his relationship to Aslan I feel uh-huh. like I think that that's an important distinction yeah. I think that that's something I didn't even notice and as soon as you said it I was like yes that's yeah. it has it has I mean, a lot of it, I'm sure, has to do with age and and maturity and all of these other things. But also, Puddlegum is the only native Narnian. He is the only one who's got that kind of direct descendant creation
1: mm-hmm. relationship with
0: Aslan here in Narnia. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. I think that's important, too.
1: He's, he's got this inborn connection to the land that is not letting him forget it
0: yeah well and i mean he is he is a mud man basically like he smokes the mud the narnian earth is in his body like
1: yeah which though you have to counter that by saying why is it so easy for the witch to make jill forget like earth and, well like, she's her not own here world.
0: though like yeah. if she was here it would be a different thing but yeah. like jill is outside her own world yeah and we've already established how easy it is to forget the other world when you're not in it yeah so even just with the wood between the worlds but also with the pevensey children spending their whole lives in narnia and then being like oh i think i remember seeing this lamppost before yeah and then wandering back into our world when they were chasing the white stag at the end of the line, the witch, in the wardrobe. Like, yeah. so we've established how easy it is to forget the other world when you're not in it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And that, I mean, I think that's very reflective of the human condition. Like, <laughs> I can't remember what I needed in this room when I walked through the door to the room that it's, you know, like, I can't, I can't remember no. what it is that I, like, was trying to do walking from one environment to another.
1: Yeah, oh, I gotcha. Uh, so anyway, we should continue talking about the the actual plot here.
0: Yeah. So, um, Puddleglum gets to be heroic. This is that. I mean, he walks over and he's basically fighting, resisting her. And what he does is he starts casting his magic spell. <laughs> so Puddleglum gets gets up walks over to the fire mm-hmm. and sticks his foot in the fire and stamps out the fire.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: He gives himself pain. He puts out some of the fire. Not the whole thing, but like the smell starts to go away and be replaced with the smell of burnt marsh wiggle.
1: Small point of order. Uh, C.S. Lewis doesn't know how ducks work uh, because he mentioned the puddle feet being uh, webbed and cold-blooded like a duck's. And and no, the ducks are warm-blooded. <laughs> he says so. that ducks are cold-blooded. Uh huh.
0: Well, the feet though, like <laughs> the point here is that it would not hurt the marshwiggle as much as it would hurt a human. Like mm-hmm. that's the point he's making here. Uh huh. But either way, <laughs> it smelled very largely of burnt marshwiggle, which <clears throat> is not at all an enchanting smell. Mm-hmm. And Puddlegum comes back. Bucks it up to the queen and just says, you know, suppose this black pit of a kingdom of yours is the only world where it strikes me as a pretty poor one. And the four, uh, and he also says, you know, if we're just making this all up, the four, but four babies playing a game can make a play world which licks your real world hollow. That's why I'm going to stand by the play world. I'm on Aslan's side, even if there isn't any Aslan to lead it. Also, he says in his little spellbinding, um, so thanking you kindly for our supper. If these two gentlemen and the young lady are ready, we're leaving your court at once and setting out for the, in the dark to spend our lives looking for the overland. And this yeah. is his little spell. Not that our lives will be very long, I should think, but that's a small loss if the world's as dull as you say. As dull a place as you say. And that like
1: Puddleglum drops the mic right there.
0: Yeah, like Puddleglum comes up and it's just like Not only are you not gonna win this, but I'm coming back stronger with my magics and I'm gonna get in your face about it. Yeah. And immediately the witch turns into a snake. Yes. And like she as soon as as soon as he starts spinning this, she turns into a snake.
1: Yeah. I also We'll get more into this, like, as the book ends, uh, for sure. I am also not upset about it, but I find it curious how Puddleglum just gets way more character development in this book than, like, either Jill or Eustace do. (laughs) Like, ostensibly, it's a book about these two human children from Earth who come to Narnia, but Puddleglum has, like, more character moments than either of them combined.
0: Yeah, it does Um, feel that way, doesn't it?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, Puddleglum is the main character of this book, let's be real here. A
0: little bit, yeah. Anyway... Hey, at least there's a main character in this book.
1: This one. I can identify him. <laughs> at
0: least this one has one.
1: Uh, so she turns into a snake.
0: Yes. The Lady of the Green Kirtle turns into a snake. There's a full paragraph of description of what this looks like. But, you know, to be clear, it happened so quickly. Yes. That there was only just time to see it.
1: Armagurchi is the snake. She was the snake the entire time.
0: We knew it. Crazy. Um, so she wraps herself around. Rillian and tries to pin his arm down, but he gets his arm out. And then Eustace and Rillian and Puddleglum all draw their swords and throw their like start swinging at her. And only two of them are mildly successful in doing mm-hmm. any damage, but she starts to loosen up her grip and then they just go at it and hack at her, hack off her head. Yep.
1: And this is the scene from the cover of my book. It is. That's uh, really wrapped up. We finally know who that is. Got the sword out. Quack, quack. Quack, quack. Hack, hack. Hack, hack. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and Puddleglum is doing it from the other side. Eustace doesn't actually accomplish anything.
0: It does not seem that way. <clears throat> he, sw- he takes several swings. Meanwhile, Scrub and Puddleglum had drawn their weapons and rushed to his aid. All three blows fell at once. Scrub, which did not even pierce the scales and did no good <laughs> on the body of the snake. Yeah, you tried. Yeah. What's, what's,
1: what's Jill doing during this scene?
0: Well, uh, let me see. Jill had very wisely sat down and was keeping quiet. She was saying to herself, I do hope I don't faint or blub or do anything idiotic. Yep. Yeah. I I wrote oi in the margin (laughs) next to that right there. Uh Uh-huh. Just Uh oi. (laughs) Uh-huh. Great.
1: She very wisely decided to sit down and be quiet.
0: Yeah. Love me a quiet woman.
1: (laughs) I... I still understand why you were so excited about Jill Pole as a character in this I book.
0: G- oh, I don't get it. I'm frustrated even more now because I remember her being so great.
1: Oh. Uh-huh. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: I don't know. I'd say Lucy has more going for her than Jill at this point. Well,
0: Lucy's always going to have more going for her <laughs> than, yeah. Uh-huh.
1: Because, yeah. Okay.
0: Lucy is awesome. And yep. Lucy's the Holy Spirit, so.
1: Yeah. Well, she didn't blub or do anything idiotic, though, so. She absolutely
0: didn't, and neither did Jill. <laughs> Jill sat quietly. Uh,
1: anyway, so, but, but ding dong, the witch is dead.
0: Ding dong, the witch is dead. Um, and Rillian says, my royal mother is avenged.
1: Yeah. This
0: is undoubtedly the same worm that I pursued in vain by the fountain in the forest of Narnia so many years ago. mm mm-hmm. All these years, I have been a slave to my mother's slayer. Mm-hmm. So this is the moment where he realizes fully what's been going on, what we knew already based on Jill's statement to the Parliament of Owls, but we've confirmed it and now really and finally knows.
1: Yeah. So I want to mention here before we finish up, again, the... Really annoying way in which Lewis tells his antagonist or villain stories.
0: can we also continue on the topic of the way he treats women?
1: Yes, you would you like to share?
0: <laughs> well, I mean, like in in this whole thing, I'm so glad that the witch took the her her serpent form at the last. It would not have suited well either with my heart or with my honor to have slain a woman,
1: yep, like, Bro, bro, even bro. though she kept you like tied to a chair for ten years and like was going to use you to overthrow a kingdom and uh, yeah, your I mean, mother like, and- yeah,
0: no, you she murdered your mother, like she if it, aslan Aslan ate the white witch's face off, yeah, like can we can we talk about like that it's okay to kill villains even if they happen to have lady parts? like, come on, like. It would not have suited my honor or my heart. Really?
1: Yep. He's just too chivalrous. And then immediately,
0: but look to the lady, and he meant Jill. Damsel, said the prince, bowing to her, you are of high courage, and therefore I doubt not you come from a noble blood in your own world. Like, I don't, it's just everything about this whole little thing. And this is. Like this undoes any good that there was going for the for the women side of things in C.S. Lewis's writing to this point. Uh-huh. Like Yes, you can kill the witch. What? I don't know. This just wouldn't have suited my honor. Mm-hmm. Really? Really, really in? Really in?
1: Well, you know, we know he's a chivalrous guy, you know, who spent every day for weeks going out and spying on this lady who was bathing at the pond. Yeah, he's totally you know. chivalrous, yep.
0: chivalrous and honorable. <laughs> yeah,
1: absolutely. But it's okay; she was magic. him.
0: Yeah, totally. Anyway, um, so go ahead; we can continue with the treatment of villains.
1: C.S. Lewis' treatment of villains, um, which I have felt like I feel like to a lesser extent in Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and I think he did the best there, Um, and I would say to a certain extent in um, Horse and His Boy, although even then, this issue applies, where for the most part, the main characters of the book have zero interaction with the antagonist of any kind, if, until, if there even
0: is an antagonist, if there is, yeah.
1: If there is an antagonist, they have zero interaction with the antagonist until one chapter where they are introduced and the conflict is resolved.
0: Yeah, yes. And absolutely. it's just like they Horses come in and voice immediately they're defeated. of this hugely like. Yeah.
1: Yes. Yeah. Um,
0: Prince Caspian and yeah. the whole yes, absolutely.
1: So they like they very briefly appear and then immediately they're defeated. Yeah. And like it never feels like it's earned. Um, I
0: mean, I feel like mm -hmm. Lion the Witch and the Wardrobe earned it because of the whole, scenes. But yeah, like, that's it. Like, even Voyager the Dawn Shredder* doesn't even have a villain to begin with, so... Yeah. Eh. Like, every villain that's introduced is a one-chapter villain.
1: And immediately defeated. And it's it's this thing where Lewis knows how to do a villain. Like, the White Witch wasn't bad. Yeah. As far as that goes. It's just this thing he's like, you know what, I'd rather tell a story about adventures and about world building and all this stuff and like, oh, I guess this has to have an antagonist for plot reasons. So, here's one that yeah. we're going to put in one chapter and she's immediately defeated. Yeah. It just feels like they it feels like they don't accomplish anything because there wasn't any weight behind any of her actions.
0: See, but we do get a lot more of her story in this one than like say Rabbit Dashes. Uh-huh. Like in this one, we get the the backstory of the The witch at the water that the prince fell in love with. The queen dying by this snake. They meet her on the road and she deceives them into going to the giants. Yeah. And then we have this whole scene with, you know, her bardic inspiration Mm -hmm. and charm person music. like. Yeah. And so we have to get through all of that. But yeah, I don't know. Um, It is... It does feel like there could be more to that story, but also when you're telling a story like this, where your whole goal is to go find the kidnapped prince, if you only have one scene with the villain who kidnapped, that's fine because it's a kidnap-rescue story.
1: Yeah, I guess so. That's kind of the idea. I just... Yeah, sure, I'm just splitting hairs at this point.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. Um. I mean, but like, yes, it... She could have been handled better, but also.
1: Anyway, so now they're gonna escape, and cool. Probably. That's the chapter. Yep. Is there anything that we need to touch on that we didn't talk about? Um. Other than, Lewis and his female issues.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's that. <laughs> there's also like the the smell of burnt marshwiggle, which isn't particularly enchanting. I find it interesting that they put so much effort into, like, calling him a frog and all of these different, like,
1: uh-huh.
0: critters. And then everyone keeps calling him frog-like and a frog, and he, like, goes and sticks his foot on a fire. Yeah. I don't know. It just seemed like <laughs> mentally and mental image of, like, this frog in a fire. But he's he's not. He's yeah. a Marsh Wiggle.
1: He is. Not a frog. Not a frog. He's a respectable.
0: Uh, not a frog. <sighs> I'm um, respectable. Yes, respectable.
1: Should we go into our next segment then?
0: Sure. Let's go into our next segment. What's that? That is baseless speculation, or right. is it our rewrites?
1: Gosh, Kristen, how many episodes of this podcast have we done?
0: How many have we done with <laughs> your baseless speculation thrown into them? Uh,
1: two almost two bucks worth at this point. Oh, okay. Um. So anyway, our next segment. His hashtag Narnia chopped and screwed where where we go back through the chapter and find five more sentences which we use to tell our own story with the words of the chapter. Cool. It's a creative exercise and it's fun. It is. Uh, You said you did not want to go first with your rewrite.
0: Yep that's why I went first with my summary so your turn.
1: So I will go ahead and do my rewrite really quick. I'm going to tell you it's not great. I was trying to leave it open-ended but here we go. Looked to the witch. He meant Jill. I cry you mercy, little brother, laughed the witch. You couldn't have heard a lovelier laugh. She was very angry because she could feel enchantment getting hold of her every moment. But he knew it would hurt him badly enough. And so it did.
0: Wow. That's That's a lot. lot. (laughs) So...
1: So this is, uh, I, I wanted Jill to be a character in this chapter, so yeah. I turned her into a character. There you go. Uh, and, you know, her becoming the antagonist instead somehow. Yeah, that that's what hope.
0: happens to strong women. Yeah. They just get written in as the antagonist.
1: Yeah. So there's mine. Even
0: you can't escape. <laughs> All right, here's my rewrite. Um, just going to let you know. This one is about a cat getting attacked by a snake. I'm telling you that up front because it might be confusing when I read it. Okay. Have you ever seen a cat? I love cats! This is undoubtedly the same worm that I pursued in vain by the fountain in the forest in Narnia so many years ago. Why, there it is! cried the prince. The prince caught the creature's neck in his left hand, trying to squeeze it till it choked.
1: That's a cute little story. Good <laughs> job.
0: No poor little cat.
1: <laughs> Thanks for that. You're welcome. Cool. You're we, don't, welcome. we don't do cute stories often enough.
0: <laughs> I like that you think it's
1: cute. Yeah. Uh... Cool. So that was Narnia, Chopped, and Screwed. We can now go into our last segment.
0: Baseless speculation.
1: And that one is because I haven't read this book before. I don't know what's going to happen, though I feel like at this point we're mostly through the plot and it doesn't have a lot more surprises in store for us. Which I've is, heard of plot. Yeah. Has Lewis? Um. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and at right. this point it gets harder and harder to baselessly speculate about what's going to happen next, but I'll try anyway. Um, so for this one... I really, as I mentioned, gets harder and harder as it gets uh, toward the end of the book just because we start tying up plot ends and it's hard to really come up with anything that's sensible. Uh, my only real thing I could come up with with this chapter, like squeezing the water from a stone, uh, was that, hey, the Wicked Witch wicked witch is defeated. We still don't know, have a name for her. I'm going to call her Suzanne. Um... <laughs> Suzanne, huh? Suzanne. It's like the dark version of Susan. <laughs> it's uh, who Susan becomes after she goes to college in America and gets too educated. Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> anyway. Uh, she is defeated. I'm just going to say that uh, the Earthmen, this army of mole people that she has doing her bidding, are somehow bewitched or ensorcelled in the same sort of way that the Duffelpuds were. Uh, and when she dies, whatever enchantment she had going on them is going to end. Now whether or not they're going to look different, I don't know. They all seem to look various uh, in various ways of like being mutated and deformed and whatnot with their giant feet and their horns and whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so it definitely seems like they're they have mutations versus being separate races of underground folk uh whether that's going to change i don't know but i think now that she's dead they're going to have their senses again and be like hey what the heck were we doing for all these years uh and they're not going to be hostile anymore because i don't think it's going to make sense in the next three chapters for them to have to fight through an army of earthmen to get out uh yeah probably (laughs) so they're they're just
0: got to get out in three chapters though
1: yeah uh, so they're not going to be hostile. What I do think is going to happen is they're going to go to the surface and they're going to surface somewhere near Harfang still. And they're going to have run-ins with the giants again because we didn't resolve that. Okay. Uh, we're going to surface near Harfang. Either the hunting party is going to be out looking for them or whatever. You but... don't
0: think that they're going to go out through the mine to what to just come out, pop out in Narnia?
1: This I got to have something for this segment. I know. Um, <laughs> and they're going to pop out near Harfang. They get confronted by giants and... You know, they, we, we think all is lost, but then the giants get overwhelmed by this army of Earthmen who, if not her, are grateful for being freed from the witch's influence uh, that are going to come up and attack the giants and let them escape. Uh, alternatively, yeah, sure, they're probably just going to use the entrance that's right underneath the field in Narnia and pop right out. And just because everything has to be connected somehow, where do they pop out? I don't know. Um,
0: probably under the Tower of the Parliament of Owls.
1: Probably right there, yep. Yep. They're gonna come up right through. (laughs) It's gonna be daytime, though, and they're all gonna be asleep. Yep, definitely. And, uh, we're gonna rudely awaken all the owls. Cool. Does Marsh Does, uh... Does Marshall... Does Puddleglum get a spot in the royal court, though, for his, uh, place in this? Does he want that? Does he want to be an advisor? He's gotta get some kind of reward here. Unless he's just, like, Chewbacca at the end of Star Wars, and he just doesn't get a medal for whatever dumb reason. Um yeah i don't I don't have much else okay. i i don't know I don't know where else we can go here in the three chapters we have left in this book so that's that's what I got all right any thoughts
0: so my thoughts are yeah i mean like i I don't think that they're going to have anything else with the Giants. I think that's it. Like, that's it. That's, well, my, I, that's my thoughts on your baseless speculation. Well, we
1: do actually have four chapters. 13, 14, 15, and 16. So, yeah. like, we do have space for another minor conflict of some kind. Uh, and it would be really boring for them to just be like, yep, well, we got to spend three weeks trekking back over the high tundra again. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, sure, they probably pop out in Narnia. And then, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what we're going to unfold over the next four chapters. One chapter's is, well... Jill and Eustace are going to spend exactly one and a half sentences getting home. That's the that's the write-off for them, because yeah. that's how it goes. Uh, and Aslan opens the door, and they're back at the school, and, like, all the bullies are gone.
0: Because
1: mm-hmm. it's summer, because they've been gone for three months. Um, <laughs> and their parents are terrified. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm just going to say another conflict with the giants, because I can't reasonably come up with another minor antagonist.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Unless they do run into that giant centipede.
0: Yeah. Maybe, cool. maybe they. Maybe it's a giant centipede. Maybe, maybe it's like the the witch was actually a snake to begin with. Maybe she was. And that's there's like some giant centipede that is her great grandmother. Yeah. <laughs> all little did we know that all of the witches in Narnia are actually snake people.
1: Apparently, they're they're <laughs> nagas. Yep. And they go to report back to Aslan, and Aslan's just like, yeah, you get like a D minus.
0: Yeah. Uh. All right. Yeah, that's it. Cool. Thank you so much for joining us today as we discussed Chapter 12 of The Silver Chair. Next week, we will be discussing Chapter 13, Underland Without the Queen.
1: hmm
0: So maybe, how, how maybe we, we do have some enchantment over all of the Earth people. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, in the meantime, if you want to let us know what you uh, think about cats, you can do that at Chronically Podcast on Facebook and Instagram at Chronically Pod on Twitter. Or you can email us your fan art of Marshwiggle at chronicallypodcast at gmail.com. You can also send us money at patreon.com slash chronicallypodcast and get nothing in return, you know, just because you're cool like that.
1: If you'd like us to be able to do this full time, <laughs> nah, send I don't us a, think a that's lot gonna, more money. Yeah, a
0: lot. A lot. That's not going to happen anytime soon. Yeah.
1: <laughs> you have a tagline?
0: If you, if, you uh, if you ever have to attack a snake with a sword, do it successfully.
1: And while your friends are doing that, just be wise and sit down and be quiet. Just don't blow.
0: Yeah, don't blow. Or be idiotic. <laughs> Thanks. Bye.
1: Bye. Hold her at sword sword point. At like point. At sword point. Hold her at sword. God, hold her at sword point is a hard sentence to say. Hold like, her at sword point. Like. C.S. Lewis lost his thesaurus. <laughs> anyway, so. But, but. Ding dong, the witch is dead.
0: Ding dong, the witch is dead. Queen. Queen. Queen as poison.
1: We go back to the chapter and five find more and. Hang on. Which small point. <laughs> Small point of order.
0: They were followed immediately by the last person whom any won. That's one word.
1: They were followed <laughs> immediately
0: by... The-
1: Got the sword out. Quack, quack. Quack, quack. Hack, hack. Hack, hack. <laughs> she said... She said... She stood dead still in the doorway. You know, Rillian gives this whole speech about, like, Irma Gird, you're the one. Yeah, he starts by saying Irma Gerd is right here in the book. <laughs>